1944 turned to 45, with the U.S. and Commonwealth armies fighting across Germany's western frontier and the Red Army approaching inexorably from the east, the days of the Nazis were clearly numbered. In the Pacific, while the momentum was clearly with the Allies and while it was clear that the Empire of Japan would ultimately lose the war, there was no foothold in Japan proper, and the prospect, the likely costs, of securing one filled planners with a sense of dread. The end game there was gonna cost countless American lives. It was at this time that our country's final major strategic bombing campaign of the war began. The effort to strike Japan with B-29s flying for the era incredible distances, first to conduct precision daylight bombing and later to conduct devastating nighttime area strikes that would turn Tokyo and other Japanese cities to ash. The architect of this campaign, operating at the limits of his authority and Washington's approval, was only getting started in his career. Let's talk about Curtis LeMay. It is a prescription for war, this Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. We continue to face a grave situation in Iran. The we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender. Hi, I'm Aaron McLean. Thanks for joining School of War. I'm delighted to be joined today by James M. Scott, who is the author most recently of Rampage and Target Tokyo, a Pulitzer Prize finalist. He lives in Charleston, South Carolina, and I was I was reading that bio wrote. So actually slightly inaccurately, he is most recently the author of what we are going to talk about today, Black Snow. Curtis LeMay, The Firebombing of Tokyo and the Road to the Atomic Bomb. Th James, thanks so much for joining the show. Aaron, thanks so much for having me on. Could you, so you're, you're, you're an author, but could you tell us a little bit about how you, how you came to focus on the Second World War and the American military as, as, as your subject? Yeah, actually, so I, my first job out of college actually was as a public school English teacher in Japan. And so that's kind of what, you I know, mean, that was back in the, the late 90s. And so it's kind of what really sparked me, my interest in World War II, and also in part my interest in the Pacific, because, you know, I was living there. There were, of course, a lot of veterans, civilians who had survived the war and whatnot. I was actually teaching a class in, I lived in this little tiny village on the main island of Honshu. And so they recruited me to teach this class at the community center at night. And so it was me and about eight of the villagers. And, you know, I remember one night the discussion came up about the American firebomb and <laughs> yeah, they were talking about what that was like. And, and of course, you know, I was 22 years old and I didn't, you know, I studied Western Civ and whatnot, but yeah, I didn't get into the nitty gritty of it all. It's like, you know, what do you mean about that? Tell me about it. And so <laughs> just kind of you know, having that sort of firsthand exposure. And so I remember one of the sort of the key moments for me though, was when I went down, I visited Hiroshima. And so I was there, spent a weekend there. And then about two weeks later, I flew to Hawaii where I was meeting my parents who were going to be there on holiday and I went and visited Pearl Harbor. So within the span of about two weeks, I kind of saw the bookends of America's experience in World War II and it just, it clicked. I mean, I was just fascinated. And so I started, you know, voraciously reading everything I could. I finished up teaching in Japan, ended up as a journalist, worked. So I was covering contemporary military issues and, you know, and it just kind of one thing sort of led to the other. And, you know, here I am all these years later. And can I just ask back, you know, I'm, I'm not going to make any assumptions about your, about your age here, but whatever, whatever year this was that you were talking with these Japanese students and others in the community about the firebombing of, of, of Tokyo and the, the, the campaign more broadly, what were, what were the attitudes then? What were they saying? 
Yeah, I mean, it was at that point, this is back in 97 and 98, this American teacher who's over there teaching kids in this, you know, the junior high school, you know, everybody was delighted, you know, and it was just, it was very, very matter of fact, just describing what it was like. But they talked about the evacuation of cities, you know, which of course occurs in the wake of the big firebombing on Tokyo and kind of what that was like. And, you know, of course, nobody was going to hold any of that against me. You know, here I was this, you know, <laughs> this, basically this puppy in my 20s, you know, sure, sure. people were very gracious about it. But for me, I found it to be just such an interesting area that, you know, look, like, you know, in covering your survey history courses, you don't get into a lot of that nitty gritty. You don't get into the stuff that we are able to get into now. And so, so, and of course, I found a lot of that same attitude when I went back working on Black Snow, you know, I spent a good bit of time in Tokyo interviewing survivors. And one of the themes I, I think I really took away from this, and of course, you know, People, of course, are going to be gracious talking to an American historian, but, you know, a lot of the blame was leveled at their own government for having prolonged the war, for having allowed this to happen, for not having taken proactive steps to evacuate cities, to cut fire breaks uh, through dense areas, most hmm. for the fire department and whatnot. But again, that also could have been them just being polite to you know, Americans, so not wanting to keep all the blame on, on me and my nation. So That's really interesting. So I, I, I'd like to spend the, the bulk of our time today um, talking about Curtis LeMay, who is, you know, the, the central figure of your your book, which, which by the way, I, I, I'd like to commend you and, you know, recommend to listeners uh, the book. I mean, it's in addition to the obvious, it's a really interesting original research in these interviews. There are two things about it that really struck me. One was these really excellent sketches and sort of analyses of the leadership styles of, of LeMay, but also some of the other central figures, especially Americans involved in this final year of, of, of the air war in the Pacific. So that's one. And then, and then two was, for lack of a better way of putting it, the, the, the balanced moral attitude of the book. I thought you, you did a really excellent job of, of seeing those events from different perspectives in a way that was not, as it can sometimes be, overbearing or obnoxious or sort of sitting in lordly judgment, but just really telling the story. And I, I, thought, I, thought, I thought it was very well done. Um, Thank you. I appreciate hearing that. So. Curtis LeMay. Fascinating yeah. figure. We, we should actually, this, I, I would love, this should be part one and there should be a part two episode one day when we talk about him after the war. But uh, tell us about Curtis LeMay, where, where he came from, how he grew up, what what he was like in, in general. Yeah, I mean, LeMay is, you know, it's, as you noted, it's it's what happens after the war, really in the latter part of his career that I think stands out in the minds of so many people. But LeMay, it's without a doubt, one of America's top combat commanders. And and you don't have to take my word for it. I was going through his efficiency reports in his, in his you know, four thousand page personnel file, and there were people like Jimmy Doolittle, you know, one of the America's true air power pioneers, writing just that. That Lemay is without a doubt one of the best commanders. Uh, you know, General Spots, same thing. So he really was. But Lemay, and it's interesting that the road he travels to get there, because he is not the kind of figure you would normally find at thirty eight years old as a two star general. I mean. Quite frankly, he was born, life was stacked against him in so many ways. I mean, he grew up dirt poor, he was born in Ohio. His father was a kind of a derelict from sort of one manual labor job to the next. You know, his mother was a house cleaner to sort of make ends meet. You know, I mean, really, LeMay, you know, had to learn at a very early age that if he was going to do anything in life and amount to anything, he had to depend completely upon himself. And that that was something that he defined him in so many ways. You know, as a kid, he worked steel mill to put himself through Ohio State. Literally, you know, I mean, you imagine that going to college all day, studying engineering, you know, this complex, you know, so much intellectual horsepower required for your subject matter, and then working all night in a sweltering 
steel mill, but that's the kind of individual he was. I mean, he, you know, he sacrificed tremendously of himself. I mean, there's one point he writes, you know, that he didn't have time for baseball, football, or dating or clubs that, that, you know, maybe as a youth, he laid in bed at night and, you know, thought of all the things he was missing out on, but most nights he was simply too tired to eat care. And, and that's, that's indicative of who he was. He was a tireless worker who wanted to get ahead. Like many of his generation, he was fascinated by aviation. He saw the army as a way to, to learn it and to master it. He jumped into it, was a fighter pilot early on, saw that strategic air power was going to be the future and bombardment switches over and becomes an incredible navigator. Quite frankly, he's one of America's most talented navigators while, while really in his 20s. You know, here he is a lieutenant and he's leading you know, these, these uh, experimental trips across the Andes Mountains. And so he really works his way up. War breaks out, goes to Europe as the combat commander, and again, applies that engineering background, that mindset to sort of tackle challenges like how do you defeat German flak? You know, how do we, how do we, maximize, you know, stack our formations to maximize the defenses of the B-17. And, and of course his, 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 his hard work pays off. You know, he, he gets more bombs, he gets, you know, lesser attrition rate than some of his colleagues. And so years take notice, his airmen take notice. And so, you know, and so he really kind of rises up through the ranks through his own hard work, his, his creativity and his, you know, really in his tenaciousness. Let's let's go back to that pre-war period for a second. Can you talk about the the fighter versus bomber debate in the in the pre-war period? And you 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 say how LeMay switched from one to the other. I mean, what was the significance of that? What were what were the stakes, both career-wise, strategically, in this debate? I think there's a lot of young fighter pilots were always kind of sort of sexy, so to speak. You know, you think of the Red Baron coming out of World War One and, and and Rickenbacker and people like that, and, and so you know. A lot of young airmen gravitated into that, but you also see that a lot of smart young airmen eventually see that the fighter is largely a defensive weapon and that bombardment and strategic bombing is going to be the future. So it's not just LeMay who makes that move. Guys like Jimmy make that move. Haywood Hansel who make that move. They see that in the end that, that, you know, the the wood and fabric biplanes that of them have fallen in love with. At the end of the 1920s and whatnot, they've now been replaced by B-17s and eventually the B-29. You have these muscular combat bombers that are able to oceans and turn entire nations into battlefields. And that that is going to be the future. That is going to be an independent fighting weapon. I mean, it's the equivalent really to like the Navy's use of a submarine during World War II, which was, you know, the, one of the greatest things the Navy ever did is they divorced the submarine from its sort of marriage to fleet actions and said, you know what, this, this weapon is a better as an independent operator, you know, going into enemy arbors and sinking ships. And that's essentially what strategic bombardment was. Let's divorce, you know, aviation from the infantry and let's make it an independent weapon. And that's what you see. That's where you see things going in World War II. And it's guys like Doolittle, LeMay and people like that who saw that in the interwar period and said, Hey, you know, I'm going to get away from being a fighter pilot. I'm going to get into bombardment because that's going to be the future of, of aviation and uh, military aviation. Let's, let's talk for a minute about the war over Europe and the B-17 and then contrast that with the war in the Pacific and, and the B-29. I'm, I'm curious to know what the significance of the new technology of the B-29 was. I'm also very excited because I hope you are. I understand we're getting a new HBO 
miniseries about the Eighth Air Force and the War Over Europe, which in, yeah. in the spirit of Band of Brothers and, and, the, and the Pacific, which, which should be a lot of fun. I don't actually know when the column probably knows when that's coming out, but I'm very much looking it's forward to it. It's been delayed, yeah. And it's based on Masters of the Air, which is Don Miller's great book on the Eighth Air Force. And, and it truly is a terrific book. I use it as a source for this. It's just, it's a joy to read. I, it's, it's fascinating. And, and Don's a great guy. And so. Well, good for him. And I just hope, you know, maybe you can tell us because I actually haven't, I've not read the book, but it breaks my heart. It actually breaks my heart as a Marine that between Band of Brothers and its sister series, The Pacific, Band of Brothers is so obviously the superior production artistically, just because they choose that one company, right? And they stick with it, which is really how to tell a story. In The Pacific, where I, I mean, I, I'm a Marine, I, I was, I, I like I I I've imbibed these stories of of you know John Best Best I, all all these guys like I know who all these guys are I know all the stories and even I'm sitting there you know in the middle of an episode confused you know like what, <laughs> what island am I on right now what regiment is this you know is that John Bass alone you know like I it, it was it was disorienting I know exactly. I read all those books and yet I was disoriented so I could only imagine watching it if you actually don't have that basis. And, and I'm with you and I still, you know, because they did have, and I'll tell you there, having watched Band of Brothers as many times as I have, you do see the struggle, the narrative struggle that they have, because even though they're working in this really tight timeline, right. essentially nine months, you know, they do, I mean, like Dick Winters moves on. And so they right. have to kind of graft him back on in, in sort of this, in, in various episodes, to sort of keep him as a through figure throughout. Now, of course, the Pacific spans a much greater time period. But I will also say, I mean, if you read something like, you know, Sledge's memoir, I mean, that's probably one of the best combat books I've ever read. I mean, yeah, it's just, agreed. you know, what he experienced and what he sees there. And so, but I do think there's a resurgence of interest in the Pacific. And maybe it's just people I follow on Twitter, but I do see more and more people saying, hey, the Pacific got short trip. It's actually really, really good and, and whatnot. It's so, good. It's good. Yeah. It's in, in a way, the, additionally, it has the, the, it's been done the disservice of being made as the companion to Band of Brothers. So, you know, if I'd never seen Band of Brothers, I probably would not be able to, to map this criticism. Yeah. But the war in Europe, to be sorry, we got, that, that was my fault. We got off, we got down a, a narrative digression right there. Yeah. The, the war in Europe, the B-17, and then what's, what's different between all that and what's happening in the Pacific and the B-29? Yeah. Couple things. Number one, the B-17 is a, a much more stable plane than what we ultimately find with the B-29. And that has everything to do with the fact that the B-17 was, in, you know, came out in the mid-1930s. And so there was a lot of time to work out the kinks with any kind of new uh, plane like that. So by the time it actually rolls into combat, you know, it's a much more stable platform for these air uh, that's not to say that they don't modify it, change out guns, things of that nature as, as the war mandates. But it, it, it's engines to catch on fire, <laughs> things like that, that you saw at the B-29. But the air war in Europe is, is uh, the distances, number one, are much, much shorter. So, of course, you know, American airmen are staging in England and they're flying over, you know, occupied Europe, you know, targets against you know, places like Belgium, France, and then eventually, of course, into Germany. Even when they're flying to Berlin and back, the maximum distances you're really looking at are about half the distances in the Pacific, about 1,500 miles round trip from England to Berlin and back. It's 1,500 miles one way to Tokyo from the Mariana Islands. So you're seeing much, much greater distances. The difference also is, of course, you know, in Europe, the Eighth Air Force is it's not just the Americans. I mean, the Americans are flying with the British. And of course, they they ultimately diverge in their tactics and that, how they go about doing it. You know, the British were, were doing high altitude daylight precision bombing and then eventually make the decision to switch over to fire raids. The Americans kind of hold firm and eventually they sort of partner up, you know, and, and sort of do the one-two punch that way. 
the Pacific is largely an all-American war when it comes to the air war. And it, I mean, it is an all-American war. And so they, and you see the, the progression of tactics from high altitude daylight precision bombing to eventually the move over to fire raids as weather and jet streams and things like that, that mandate it. But, you know, there is also the bigger question, which I, which sort of hangs over the whole air war really in both campaigns, which is the, you know, precision bombing and strategic bombardment was sold as a quick and painless way to bring about the end to a war. And, you know, the idea that was developed in the interwar periods, you know, between these sort of these bomber advocates was that modern economies are like a house of cards. And so they're dependent upon an interconnected web of industries. And if you target the right industry, like oil refineries, it's like pulling the card out at the bottom and the whole thing will collapse upon itself. And of course, the air war in Europe becomes much longer, much harder, much more violent than anybody imagines. And it becomes a slog. In fact, more American airmen would ultimately die in the heavens over Europe than the Marine Corps would lose right. in the entire war. Right. And so it becomes an attritional war. And the German economy is just far more resourceful than people, you know, thought about during that. They're able to disperse industries. They're able to grab raw materials from occupied countries. And the war just goes on and on and on. And of course, that then sets up the air war against Japan, which you have to remember, it doesn't start until 44. So, I mean, all these lessons have been learned in Europe. These experiences have been had, and quite frankly, the patience for a long, drawn-out air war is simply not there in by 1944 for America to have like this three, four-year campaign against the Japanese. So the pressure is on those commanders in the Pacific to hurry up and break the Japanese, to end the war, and to prevent Americans from having to invade in what promises to be an incredibly bloody confrontation between American and Japanese troops. Like we like what you saw in the Pacific, like what you saw in Okinawa or Iwo Jima or in, or in the streets of Manila. So, right. right. That fact that more airmen die in the skies over Europe, or is it, is it generally in the skies over Europe or is it with the 8th Air Force specifically than the Marine Corps loses in the war? Which, whichever oh, it is. It's actually, yeah. It's, I mean, they were all been pretty much in the 8th Air Force. Anyway. Which, that was which, whichever it is. Fighting. Yeah. I mean, it's an incredible fact that I don't think most people know that just illustrates the savagery of of this combat to include in the Pacific where you have a series of vignettes, you know, you document in the book what it was like on these bombers when things go when things go awry, right? When people get wounded, the aircraft have trouble. And just uh, there's this one, this is one vignette you tell from I can't remember what it is, I think maybe February of 45 of a of a bomber that's damaged over the target. You have an officer bleeding out on the aircraft as it's proceeding slowly across the thousands of miles on the way back to the to, to Guam or the vicinity of Guam, escorted by another bomber. And it's, it's I mean, it's just, I, I'm not doing it justice. I mean, it's difficult to read and would have been life-changing in a terrible way for everyone involved in the incident. Absolutely. And again, that's what it's down to, you know, in the air war, I mean, you're, you know, the, the distances in Europe are so much shorter. So if you did get bad flak damage or fighter damage, you know, you could be back to base much, much shorter. I mean, it's 1500 miles, you're looking at seven or eight hours with an engine out trying to make it all the way back while bleeding. And, you know, it's just, yeah. you know, that, that hung over those airmen every time they took off, how long, and I mean, they would get out of these planes at the end of these missions and like their legs wouldn't work. <laughs> They've been sitting yeah. so long that, you know, their knees were wobbly. So you talk about this precision versus aerial or, or area, sorry, or, or incendiary bombing. And I, I want to get into that with you and, you know, cause there's an ethical, right. Precision is also sold as, sold as, as an ethical way, right. To, to prosecute the war, as opposed to the sort of the murder of, of area bombing. And maybe a good way to get into this subject is, is Haywood Hansel, who is another fascinating 
figure from the period and major character in your book and, and is in quite, you know, quite the contrast to LeMay. Tell, tell us about Hansel and, and his evangelism for precision bombing. Yeah. So, I mean, Hansel is everything LeMay is not, you know, I mean, LeMay is, just, you know, bulldog, stern, you know, bootstrap kind of guy, whereas Hansel had really come up through sort of like the, the army's aristocracy, you know, he had relatives who'd fought in every world back to the revolution, grew up the son of an army surgeon, um, you know, had lived in the Philippines and China as he sort of followed his dad around, you know, he was an intellectual, he was highly educated, he was a thinker. Like LeMay, he'd started out as a fighter pilot and eventually moved over to bombardment. And he was one of the ones that really was sort of the principal architects behind the precisely pinpoint, you know, industry and knock a country out. It's it's like slitting the jugular versus beating somebody to death. So it's a, it's a faster, you know, ultimately more painless process for the larger population because you're just, you're knocking them out without having to cause total city destruction, and displacement of workers, et cetera, et cetera. And so he's a preacher of that. I mean, to him, it's the gospel. And he he fights in Europe with LeMay. In fact, he's actually LeMay's boss early on in Europe. And in, in LeMay's personnel file, I found a commendation letter that Hansel wrote for him. Hmm. He actually helped advocate for LeMay's promotion to Brigadier General. And of course, he is the one who's initially selected to lead America's air war against Japan. And as you might imagine, this preacher of high altitude daylight precision bombing comes in and he he practices that against Japan in late 1944. And he finds that it's a huge struggle and in a whole lot of reasons. I mean, you know, number one, we've just taken over these bases in the Mariana Islands. You know, these are battered islands and you have to build the infrastructure, the runways, the hard stands. You've got to import all your fuel. You've got this sensitive new bomber that has engine fires. You know, your, your crews are sleeping in tents, you know, and on top of all that, just these maintenance and logistics, Japan has horrific weather, cloud cover blankets, this island nation, you know, some months reducing visibility to just three days a month. You know, if you've got such low visibility, not only is that difficult, but you have to be able to predict those few clear days that you are going to have. And then of course they discover way up high in heavens that Japan has these very violent jet streams that blow at 230 miles per hour. It's like the gales that batter Mount Everest. And of course, the weather and the jet streams just combine to wreck bomber advocacy. And so Hansel, he's just struggling on all levels and he's unable to adapt. He's unable to, you know, to figure out how to solve the problem. And it's just, you know, that like that old saying they say about, you know, insanity is the same, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different words. That's his approach. Right. And of course, at this point, by late 1944, there's no patience. You know, America is developing invasion plans. You know, those are ultimately going to be, you know, approved in you know, the Kyushu invasion in June of 45. You know, there's all this pressure. Who's the head of the Army Air Forces is, you know, desperate to show that his airmen can, can own a share of the victory alongside the Army and Navy. And he wants this bomber to do it. And, and he's not willing to cut Hansel a whole lot of slack. And eventually he fires him literally after 44 days of operations and replaces him with LeMay. And so there you see this great contrast between these two leaders, you know, the, the Haywood Hansel, the planner, the academic, and then you have Curtis LeMay, who's the predator. And that's the difference between them. You know, one is a planner, one is a predator. Hansel even sort of remarks on this himself, right? You document this in the book, that the, the guys back in Washington, I guess, think I'm more of a planner than an executor, some, something like that. Uh, and he, but he had some self-knowledge. He gets that. No, he does get that. And then and the guys that worked for him said that, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't one of the guys that was going to be accepted sort of amongst the bomber crews. You know, he was more of that lofty thinker. You know, he, he got excited 
you know, enemy economics, things like right. that, as right. opposed to, you know, bomber formations and tactics and stuff like that. So, I mean, he was in a lot of ways a fish out of water. Yeah. That said, when he was fired, it was, it was soul crushing for him. And yeah. as you might imagine, and it, and it really scarred him for the rest of his life. I mean, if you go through his personal papers, which are the Air Force Academy and the library out there, I mean, he, all the way up to the 1970s and, and he's writing letters to colleagues. And I mean, it's still very clear that his termination is a, is a big, is a, is a star that will never heal. Your depiction of his, his 44 days in the seat and his relief, they actually kind of, kind of reminded me of just a lot of movie references today of a of 12 o'clock high. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's actually a very similar story. And for, for anyone who hasn't seen that movie, you have Gregory Peck as the, uh, he, he has to go relieve his buddy who's running. I mean, this is at a lower level. I think it's at the group level in 12 o'clock high, and then has a very, you know, stressful time at the end of which he's, he is without ruining too much of the movie for those who haven't seen it, also expended in terms of his best efforts. And it's a very similar, he has troublesome personalities under him that delay them will they have to deal with, right? You have, is it Rosie O'Donnell? Kind of a- Rosie O'Donnell. Crazy, yeah. cra- tell us about Rosie O'Donnell and some of the, the the leadership challenges that both LeMay and before him Hansel faced leading these, I mean, these crews of real people and real personalities and real subordinate commanders who are factors here. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Hansel runs what's called the 21st Bomber Command, and that's that's the, the sort of the principles that he's got underneath him, Brigadier General Rosie O'Donnell, who is his sort of lead wing commander of the 73rd. And it's, and it's O'Donnell whose job it is, is to lead these missions over Japan. I mean, it's his outfit that's going to be the ones flying him. And O'Donnell is a, he's a big personality. You know, he had fought early on in the war in the Philippines. He had gone to the Air Force Academy, he was a star athlete. He was a, his men loved him. I mean, he just, I mean, you read the oral histories of these guys and they just gush about O'Donnell. They'd give him his right arm if you asked for it. And so he had this tremendous loyalty. And he also had the ear of Hap Arnold because he'd worked as a, an advisor to Hap Arnold. So he, he, he was able to bypass Hansel and make his complaints up the chain of command, which of course is only going to infuriate Hansel. But O'Donnell also saw that the struggles they were facing against Japan were not going to be fixable by Hansel continuing to fly with the missions he was flying without, without some sort of change. And of course, O'Donnell all along had advocated that America adopt the same tactics that the British were using in Europe and start firebombing Japanese cities. And so he was very vocal about that. And he not only told Hansel that, he told Arnold that. He, he griped a lot in his diary, his personal diary about that. And so it just really creates this bad morale in, in the Mariana Islands because, you know, here they are, they're living in tents, they're eating flight rations. So, you know, the, the Japanese are still doing raids. There's still Japanese rogue Japanese troops. There's all these stresses. The missions aren't working. And then, of course, you've got this collision of personality between Hansel and his, his top combat commander. And of course, it's just a recipe for disaster. And of course, that's the situation LeMay walks into in January of 1945 when he's relieved Hansel. He's got to come in and he's got to fix all of these problems. Yeah. And, and of course, that's a, it's a pretty big job. Usually when commanding officers are relieved, it's a, you, you have a series of problems that face you on, on day one. And then there's this great encounter which you document between, because O'Donnell, who I, I don't know. He's obviously a, a, a personally a hero and accomplished a tremendous amount. Personally, I found him somewhat aggravating and myself sympathetic to both Hansel and LeMay in their dealings with him. And there's this great encounter where he he uh, he he pulls he tries to pull the same stuff on LeMay. Yeah. Uh, and I think what flies down to Guam to yeah. tell 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 the tell the story of, of how this came about because because LeMay is playing games as well with his own planning process. 
Yeah. So, I mean, you know, Adon, like I said, he's a big personality. And so he's, he's, he pushed his back a lot on Hansel. And I mean, he's a big personality. He's big physically. I mean, he's just a, he's a boisterous guy. And of course, LeMay comes in and inherits this bad situation where morale's terrible and everything like that. And he immediately assesses this long list of problems he's got to fix. And of course, you know, one of them, he, he sets out that in order to get these guys conditioned to flying at a low altitude, you know, he, he, he basically says, you guys are going to fly on this mission at like 50 feet, this, this test mission. It's just going to be to drop bombs on an unoccupied part of the Mariana Islands. And uh, of course, O'Donnell balks. And so he actually flies down from, because at this point, LeMay is based on Guam and, and O'Donnell's outfits on Saipan. So he flies all the way down there for this confrontation. And LeMay brings him in and sits him down and just stares him down. And it's a big difference between how Hansel handled Because Hansel, you know, Hansel was, as a planner, was used to leadership through consensus and through compromise not through just brute ordering when you have to do it. And LeMay didn't, that's not how LeMay rolled. I mean, LeMay was a, you know, you know, his world was one where it was top down control. I mean, bad decisions got people killed. You know, you saw that at the breakfast table the day after a bad mission and it was his way or the highway. And so he has a very different run. And so O'Donnell come down face to face and they just stared at each other across the table. And he's like, we can't run this mission. And LeMay just looks at him. He's like, by God, you will run this mission. And it's just everybody, and of course, all these other officers are sitting around the table just seeing who's eventually, you know, O'Donnell drops his eyes, says, yes, sir, gets up and leaves. And you know what? Falls into place, becomes this, you know, it becomes this amazing tactic. And, and of course, LeMay and o, o, O'Donnell ends up having this great relationship. If they, he, he brings O'Donnell back onto his team years later when he, in yeah. post-war era and whatnot, but, you know, he had to just kind of come in and corral him and Sure, by who's boss. <laughs> yeah, that's what less experienced leaders, or in, in Hansel's case, less gifted leaders don't realize immediately. So that what that's what O'Donnell needs. People like O'Donnell need that, and without yeah. that, they they actually they're 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 less productive. Yeah, they need they need right. the firm hand. So let's so talk through. So Lemay's there. Hansel's guys were taking casualties without achieving a great deal. Walk us through Lemay's yep. thought process in the lead up to the bombing of Tokyo in in March. So, you know, LeMay comes in and he has this sort of fateful encounter with Hansel. And, you know, you got to remember, they're friends. They've worked together and all this. And so Hansel says to him before he departs, he says, look, you know, remember, uh, you know, we in the end are, are going to be judged not by whether we win the war, but by how we win the war. And, and, and for, for Hansel, it's, it's, a, it's a way to continue to try to push LeMay to keep doing my altitude daylight precision bombing that Hansel was such a believer in. And LeMay, to his credit, says, look, hey, I... I'm going to, I'm going to do what you were doing. I'm going to follow that's that, that was the strategy. That was the tactics that America was using at that point. I'm going to keep doing that until I can't basically. And so LeMay, when he begins, you know, a lot, a lot of people make the, the inaccurate assumption that as soon as LeMay comes over, firebombing begins. And that's simply not true. Le, LeMay has a period of, of, of several months, in fact, in which he, He's taking Hansel's efforts and he's tinkering with them. He's saying, you know what? If, if 30,000 feet, we've got too much cloud cover and jet streams. What if we bring the bombers down to 25,000 feet? Will that get us in under the jet streams? If we're having a problem where we can't see what we're doing, let's start using radar more. And so he starts pushing his men to embrace radar. He sets up schools to train his pilots to be bombers in the skies. And, and so he's tinkering all the time, trying to figure out, because he's an engineer, remember? His background is how can I fix this this equation. And it takes him several months, takes him, you know, January rolls into February, February rolls into March. And he eventually comes to the realization that the problem can't be solved 
using high altitude daylight precision bombing. Not if America is in a rush to defeat Japan before an invasion. It's going to take a radical rethinking of how we fight that. And that's when he makes that decision that we are going to switch from precision bombing to fire raids against Japan. And that, of course, takes place. That's the big fateful first mission against Tokyo in March of 1945 that decimates the Japanese capital. And, and meanwhile, you know, in Europe, you have the bombing of Dresden in, mm -hmm. in February, which, as you document, you know, very, very similar in principle to what is going to happen to Tokyo the next month, <laughs> and, and not just in principle, in practice. And it, 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 if you'll forgive the expression, it does kind of ignite a firestorm back in the UK in terms of public opinion. And Bomber Harris to this day, you know, is a, is a, is a, he's got a complex legacy in the UK that I think LeMay has in the United States too, but actually more for post-war stuff than, than the, than the war itself. So what talk, like, how does, how does what, what is happening in Europe create the context for what's about to happen in Japan? And, and, and that's a great, it's a great question and a great point because, you know, up until this, up until Dresden, Dresden takes place literally in February of 45. So it takes place right at the very end of the war, right before the U.S. Uh, burns Tokyo. And, and, and it's really, it's not the most destructive raid that the British had flown, actually. I mean, Hamburg in July of 1943 kills almost twice as many people. I mean, it kills about over 40,000 people. Dresden, I think, is... Estimates range between twenty five and thirty five thousand is how many people died. So Hamburg is actually a more violent, more more destructive in terms of of casualties than than even Dresden, and it doesn't really create any kind of blip. But it's not until Dresden that you start seeing church leaders and people in Parliament in the UK saying, "Wait a second, you know, like, hey, what are we doing here?" You know, and and and, and Churchill actually tries at that point to distance himself to some extent from it. Now, remember, early in the war, he embraces these things. In fact, he sends a letter in 1942 to. To, to Roosevelt being like, we've got this great new way to attack the Germans, burn everything down. I mean, he's like gleeful about it. And then suddenly by 45, when the war is coming to an end and he, they recognize that, hey, they're going to be judgments passed down on, on, on how we fought, that people start saying, you know what, we got to distance ourselves a little bit from this. Of course, LeMay really just doesn't care. I mean, he's just, and that's kind of how LeMay rolls. He is not one to obsess about public opinion. He's not one to, to fret about that. He is someone who's going to get a job done. And so he really kind of just, you know, doesn't, doesn't get, doesn't engage on that. I mean, Dresden happens, you know, and in, in, in literally several weeks before Tokyo, and it just doesn't even phase LeMay. I mean, at that point, he's planning the operation. He's going through with it. Even after Tokyo, you know, people in Washington are concerned as they're going to be this kind of big pushback against America for the switch in tactics and, you know, this, this killing of civilians. And, and LeMay, they, they cable guidance to LeMay from Washington saying, you know, hey, you got to really mind the press, make sure they're not saying we're intentionally killing civilians. And LeMay just says, you know, whatever, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. Well, this is part of the the story of the Tokyo attack that I actually, I did not, I did not know about until, until reading your book. It was fascinating to me was, we'll just say a, a less robust approval process for this operation than I am familiar <laughs> with in my own time in the military, or indeed, you know, just here in Washington in 2022, you know, you have, we have a world today where, you know, you have 29 year olds on the National Security Council trying to move, you know, carrier strike groups from one grid square to another in the Pacific. But LeMay basically bakes and then serves this operation sort of on his own authority without what seems to be to be much in the way of oversight from, from, from anyone. You know, how is that even possible? And by the way, I love that expression, a less robust approval process. I've got to, I've got to have to use that. <laughs> That's a great way of describing it. Uh, understatement is <laughs> something here and there in my career. 
So no, it's exactly. And that's one of the crazy things about this story is that, you know, Hap Arnold, when he develops the B-29, right? And, it, and, and it's this huge technological gamble, right? The U.S. spends more money on the B-29 than even the atomic bomb. It's the single most expensive weapon system in the war to build this hemispheric bomber that can bridge the Pacific, okay? So when this bomber is coming online, Hap Arnold is saying, you know what? This thing is too powerful of a machine to just let it be handed over to to Douglas MacArthur or to Sir Nimitz because it's just going to get absorbed into actions or it's going to be an accompaniment landings. And this thing is an independent fighter, like we were talking about earlier with submarines. This thing is its own weapon. And so he comes up with this sort of unorthodox idea of like, well, how, how, can, we lead, how can we fight this thing? So he pits it to the Joint Chiefs of Staff that he's going to create an, they basically a new air, independent air force, the 20th. And he's going to put himself in charge. Hap Arnold, okay, the head of the Army Air Force, this guy who learned how to fly from Orville and Wilbur Wright, you know, in the in the early 1900s, who now leads America's strike force. So he goes to the Joint Chiefs of Staff and he says, we're going to create this independent air force. I'm going to be the leader of it. I'm going to still be in Washington. I'll report directly to you guys. And people like LeMay and Hansel will be my direct subordinates out there. So they'll be leading the day-to-day operations. And the Joint Chiefs of Staff signs off on it. And so they effectively create in the Pacific an independent air force that Hap Arnold controls in a long ways. Now, Hap Arnold suffers this massive heart attack in January of 1945, and he's out. He's convalescing down in Florida. And so LeMay's out there by himself, like running this whole show. And he's reporting back to Arnold's chief of staff at that point, a guy by the name of Lawrence Norstad. He's a brigadier general. So LeMay outranks him. LeMay doesn't really trust Norstad either. If you read LeMay's comments after the war and his oral histories, I mean, he really doesn't trust him. He thinks he's gunning for his job potentially. And so he's not going to tell Norstad all that much about what he's doing, but he does make this cryptic comment at one point because he's trying to feel him out for what Arnold's thoughts would be about this massive change of tactics. And he says, is half Arnold a gambling man? And Norstad says, well, look, Arnold is in favor of anything that will end the war quickly. And LeMay interprets that as a green light, and he sets off to plan this entire operation. Well, he doesn't really tell anybody what he's doing, as you know. I mean, he doesn't tell Nimitz, you know, he's, he's there in the Marianas. He doesn't tell MacArthur. He doesn't even send any cables back to Washington. He just gets his guys to plan this whole operation. And then he, he begins to, as the operation's coming together, he cryptically writes back to Norstad, and he says, you know, Norstad's supposed to come out in April and check on operations. And he writes to him, he says, you know what? I know you're planning on coming out later. She should really come out now. <laughs> There's some things we need to talk about that we don't like writing. <laughs> and it's so like a week goes by and he doesn't hear back and he, he, he messages him again very cryptically. He's like, I'm going to remind you, you need to come out now. And so Norstack gets on this plane and literally flies out there. He takes off on March 7th. Of course, at this point, you got to remember, it takes two days to get all the way out there. I mean, these are propeller-driven planes and whatnot. Meanwhile, LeMay greenlights the operation, all that. Norstad touches down on Guam and it's, March 9th. It's the day the operation's planned. They're like fueling bombers. You know, this thing is is going. And at that point, LeMay sends his first detailed message back to Washington. Says, and I'm paraphrasing, but for tonight's operation, I propose a radical change in our tactics. And that's the first message back to Washington. And of course, at this point, it's on. You know, there's no stopping this train. And so, so yeah, so LeMay makes this huge, this one of the most consequential decisions of World War II. By himself, 38-year-old, two-star general on Guam, changes out everything. 
It is incredible that as late as 1945, where, you know, communications technology is pretty robust, you know, you can, in fact, get from Washington to Guam in a couple of days, <laughs> you, you know, you're running out of excuses about why you haven't communicated clearly your intent. And you have this guy who, you know, I think you describe at one point in the book as a kind of Lord of War at this point, who all but unilaterally decides to eliminate the enemy capital. I mean, that is that is his decision. It's 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 quite incredible, and it's something to reflect on what it takes for an individual not not only to to do it right to 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 flatten the city full of you know civilians, but also you know in an organization that is an organization of careerists, and he is a careerist to to launch an operation that if it failed, he would be done most likely because he's so far out in the limb, everyone else is going to wash their hands of it. And that's that's a and then b at a moral level, as he famously reflects, if we lose this war, we'll be tried as war criminals. People, everybody loves to talk about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And of course, those are massive undertakings as well. But this really sets the stage for that. And this really is, you know, this is a decision that is not made by the commander in chief. That's not made by the Joint Chiefs of Staff. That's not made by Hap Arnold. That is completely made by LeMay. And part of that is on purpose. LeMay takes the approach, like I think I, I say with my kids all the time, like my kids love to beg forgiveness, but not ask permission. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know what happened to those donuts, you know? <laughs> was I not I'm supposed sorry. to eat those? I'm sorry, I did not get that memo. I yeah. did not get the memo that I was I was not supposed yeah. to bomb to destroy Tokyo without asking for permission first. And he kind of, that's kind of his attitude. And he says, look, you know, I wanted this thing to happen. I didn't want to tell Arnold. He could blame me and and he could salvage the B-29 program and, and I'd be the scapegoat. So I mean, he really set himself up intentionally to be this potential fall guy. And so I'm telling you, it's an incredibly gutsy move. Even Haywood Hansel, right? Who's for the rest of his life is sour about losing this job, would later on reflect and say the decision that Le- LeMay made is one of the most courageous decisions of World War II. You know, so whatever you think about it from a moral perspective, it's still one of the just the most gutsy decisions. Well, we'll we'll talk about the consequences in a second, but let's actually talk about the the operation itself. So, what happens the night of March 9th and tenth, nineteen forty five? So, Lemay just totally changes everything. He says we're not going to go in at thirty thousand feet. We're going to go in as low as five thousand feet. We're not going to go in in formations. We're going to go in singly. We're going to go, we're going to go, and since we are going to be so low to give our guys protection, we're going to go in at night. So the Japanese, it'll be harder for them to see us. They don't have great night fighter capability. And we're also going to switch out our demolition bombs for incendiaries. And we are going to burn that city down. And of course, American, and it's important to note that even though LeMay makes this decision, American war planners had been moving in this direction previously because he didn't have to invent the wheel, so to speak, and figure out how to do this. I mean, America had invented a great new flame weapon. We had actually tested that weapon on a mock Japanese village in the summer of 1983 that we built in Utah. And our war planners had begun dissecting Japan cities based on incendiary zones. And we're categorizing them on what parts of Japan were most full. And of course, the reason we did that, because Tokyo and Yokohama had burned in 1923 in the, after a big earthquake and subsequent fires that were ignited burned it. And so we sort of use that as a blueprint for how we might attack Japan. I mean, that, that was the Achilles heel of Japan. These dense wooden cities. I mean, they're in there. And by dense, I mean, hyper dense. There's only one area of Tokyo 
with 135,000 people per square wow. mile. LeMay's target area was about a 12 square mile target area. And the average population density was 103,000 people per square mile. That's about five times the level of density you would have found in Washington, D.C. at that time period. So you're imagining people living in dense pack conditions. There's no, there are no real fire breaks. Japan has very few major parks. Its fire department is, is woefully inadequate. They can't import any new equipment once the war breaks out or whatnot. So many of their firefighters have also been conscripted to the war effort. So they really push the, um, they really push the firefighting burden off to the population and themselves saying, you know what, when a fire breaks out, you guys go use bags of sand and, 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 and brooms and try to get them out till the professionals arrive. So it's, it's really a recipe for disaster for the Japanese. And so tell us, tell us what it's like from the perspective of the ground once the raid begins. Yeah. So it's March, 1945. So you can imagine it's just snowed a few days earlier. It's super cold. Life in Japan is pretty miserable at this point because Japan has been the subject of, a, of, a, of an American submarine blockade for years. Uh, the results of which had really crystallized by that last year of the war and the fact that residents are can't get medicines. They can't even get bandages. Food is super scarce. I mean, the average resident spending much of their day trying to find food and things like that. The Japanese government hasn't really given them any clue that how bad firebombings could get. So most people have a, at best a primitive little bomb shelter, like a foxhole in their yard. So they're just, they're woefully ill-prepared for this. And so, and of course this raid happens in the middle of the night. So a lot of people, they have blackout regulations. They've already gone to bed. And of course, that's when LeMay's bombers start attacking. And, and what LeMay did is they, they sort of created inside this sort of, imagine a rectangle, a 12 square mile rectangle, the quadrants, they'll eventually merge together and create a, a sort, sort of just this massive inferno. And that's precisely what happens. You know, LeMay, these, these early fires, they, they, they start burning, uh, they meld together, they end up creating literally a tidal wave of fire that covers four city wards. And it just rolls across the city. It's three, it's three miles long. It's this tidal wave. It rolls like a, a wave across the city. And so for those residents there, it's this terrifying phenomenon. And, 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 you know, and of course, as this fire gets bigger and bigger, it eventually, much like Dresden, much like Hamburg, it becomes a firestorm. And a firestorm, for folks who don't know, is all the hot air is escaping vertically, and it creates this, and it's a, at the base of the fire. And that vacuum, you know, nature hates vacuum, so it's pulling in cold oxygenated air from the perimeter and that air into the center of the fire is is essentially a firestorm and, it, and that, that rush of air can reach hurricane force winds it's enough where it's like toppling trees and utility poles and things like that and so it really in, in this fire it it, it it becomes like the self-fulfilling prophecy it just eats everything in its path and so and that's essentially what happens in tokyo the only reason the fire goes out it's not because anybody puts it out it's because it runs out of material it just Burns and burns itself out. So for those residents, it's terrifying. When I did interviews in Tokyo, I always asked people, "What did it look like? What did it smell like? What did it sound like?" You know, give me that. And, and, and universally, everybody said it's incredibly loud. You know, it's like a freight train. And you imagine like a crackle of a campfire. You know, we'll, we'll magnify that ten thousand times over. And of course, in their pockets of superheated air throughout. I mean, it's, there's no universal temperature throughout. I mean, you could have. One block, it's 1,800 degrees, and a block away, it's 500 degrees, because depending on the pockets there, there are, there are toxic gases, there's massive amounts of carbon monoxide. You know, people, as the temperatures rise, people's clothing and their hair begins to spontaneously catch on fire. Breathing becomes incredibly difficult. People's eyelashes start to melt. The 
the liquid, the asphalt turns into, it softens into a goo that clings to your feet, almost like a quicksand, you know? And so, so people sought shelter, you know, and it's, and some of them shot shelter in these little primitive foxholes for the most part, all those people died. You just simply, there was no protection that shallow of a bunker. So a lot of people then sought out like a handful of canals in the, in the river or whatnot, but a lot of those people suffocated from lack of oxygen or they died of toxic gas, carbon dioxide poisoning and drowned. Last people ended up getting inside the handful of concrete village at schools, train stations, places like that. And those initially provided safety until the glass and the windows began to melt. The heat incurred doors and the windows now then just this you can imagine the snowstorm of, of of embers floods inside and that's when the hallways and the staircases of schools and places like that began to function like chimneys funneling that superheated air and of course inside people were then trapped these concrete buildings became like ovens and people just roasted inside so it was really just a, a horrifically terrifying experience to be caught in so at that level of human cost, and of course there are follow-up attacks using the same tactics that LeMay leads or, or, or directs, you know, does this shorten the war? And so it's sort of question A and, and closely related question B, how does this tactic then lead into Hiroshima and, and, and Nagasaki? Like, how does this all work together to, to end the war without a grand invasion? And, and I, I, to, to be clear, I, what I'm trying to drive that here and I'm not, I'm not expressing myself clearly enough is... Obviously, the atomic bombs are what kind of yeah. sealed the deal in terms of war termination. Did the firebombing hasten or help at all? Yeah. First off, it's, let's, let, it, this, this attack on Tokyo stunned even LeMay. Like he was expecting you know, and hoping for a big destruction. But the next morning, I mean, 16 square miles of Tokyo were gone. I mean, burned. 105,000 people killed. Literally one out of every four buildings of the capital was destroyed. I mean, so LeMay was even stunned. I mean, when they looked at the photographs, you know, 24 hours later of the first recon planes over Tokyo, they were like, wow. <laughs> you know? And of course, what LeMay immediately realizes is, all right, we've got to keep striking Japan before they can adapt against this. And so he immediately flies missions in the next eight days against Nagoya, Osaka, Kobe, and then Nagoya again. And, and over the course of that, roughly eight, nine, 10 days, Japan's principal cities. And that then ushers in a whole new form of air warfare. And LeMay, over the next 159 days, literally just begins targeting initially all of Japan's large, a half dozen large industrial cities. By June, he's burned over 100 square miles of those cities. Then he moves on to secondary cities. You know, with populations 300,000, 250,000. And then by the end of the, by the end of the war, he's down to like these tertiary sized cities, with populations of like 35,000 people and really with no urban industrial capability or whatnot. I mean, just picking them out based on the fact that they're, they're large enough to burn. And so, and of course, you know, America was very sensitive about what would the American public think of this? You know, this is a huge in tactics and whatnot, even though LeMay is not that sensitive, his superiors were. And universally, the media just, they applauded these efforts. And I think the, 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 the line I always fall back on, I mean, Time Magazine actually writes in the wake of this, they say, you know, properly kindled, Japanese cities will burn like autumn leaves. And that's just a green light for LeMay to kick off this whole campaign. And, and so, I mean, Tokyo in a lot of ways is a trial balloon for whether the American public, are they going to react like the British did in the wake of Dresden and be outraged and demand that their lawmakers put an end to this? Or are they going to go along with it? And, and of course, 
they get their answer through like that Time Magazine comment and LeMay just moves on and on. And so it really, it sort of paves the way for the atomic attacks because the American public have shown that they're, they're, that they're okay with this if it brings about an end to the war. Americans are tired of seeing their husbands and sons fighting on these faraway malarial islands and jungles and whatnot. You know, they're ready for this war to be over. Nobody wants this invasion and whatnot. And so all that sort of just begins the march toward August 6th when you know what gay arrives in the skies over Hiroshima. And another way of asking the same question is, had, let's say the atomic technology had not been developed. Would firebombing have been sufficient to end the war without a ground invasion had, had it been continued? Along the same course, yeah, I know we're into counterfactuals here, but yeah, they're, they're always they're always hard. But you know, the reality is, I think America was. I mean, General Marshall was pretty stunned after Tokyo that the Japanese didn't quit. I mean, hmm. so, in fact, he used that as a justification when he was asked about the atomic bomb after war. He's like, "Look, man, hundred thousand people killed in Tokyo, sixteen square miles. I mean, you got to remember." Hiroshima, after the atomic bomb, is about 4.4 square miles in the city are destroyed. The bomb goes off, and then it also creates a firestorm, one of the few, like Tokyo, that actually takes place in the Pacific War. Now, they have huge casualties. About 80,000 people initially died, and of course, many, many more in the weeks, months, and years ahead. But the the, the property damage is far more vast in Tokyo, and, uh, and of course, human casualties are, are, are massive. But Marshall was stunned. You know, he said, hey, who, who would have thought the Japanese would have kept fighting after Tokyo? And then, then you see what happens to, I mean, LeMay, by the time he gets to Hiroshima, he's already burned like 170 square miles of Japan cities, and yet they still fought on. I mean, LeMay was running out of targets. In fact, I mean, he, he, he's, I mean, the only Hiroshima existed as a target, a city that size, you know, population of about 300,000, was because LeMay had ordered to hold back a handful of bigger targets for the atomic bomb. He's on burning towns of 35,000. He's literally out of targets. And yet Japan kept fighting. So the atomic bombs really, particularly when you get into the political making of the emperor, the atomic bombs do play a very big political role in sort of breaking the deadlock and convincing the Japanese to accept unconditional surrender. So firebombing, like LeMay said, he, by the 1st of October, he was going to be out of targets. Yeah. I mean, it's important to remember too, you know, Tokyo, the one raid on Tokyo gets all the attention, but LeMay ultimately flies six missions against Tokyo. Those six missions burned 56 square miles of the capital. Now put that in perspective, Manhattan Island is 21 square miles. That's how much of Tokyo he destroyed. Well, we are more or less out of time here, which is a shame because I'd like to keep talking with you about Curtis LeMay. Maybe we can do a, another discussion sometime about his post-war career, which is itself you know, fascinating and central to the history of the Cold War, parodied in Dr. Strangelove. And then he you know, he ultimately has this kind of sad coda, which like a lot of folks who are, who are you know, not very politically sophisticated, get dragged into politics and ends up not going well. It's George, George Wallace's running mate yeah. in, in 68. But we'll we'll save that conversation for for another time. And I'm I'm grateful for you for 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 making the time today, James M. Scott, author of Black Snow, Curtis LeMay, Firebombing of Tokyo on the Road to the Atomic Bomb. It's a really interesting conversation. Aaron, thanks so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. This is a Nebulous Media production. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.